Hello and welcome to episode 12, the first of 2015 of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm Paul, here with Pete. Hello. Good to be back. Uh, yes, indeed. New year, new start. Pretty excited to see what we can do on the show in the next 12 months. How was your Christmas, Pete? It was good, man. It was a lot of family time. I enjoy family time quite a bit, but after the ninth or tenth hour of sitting in an armchair, it kind of gets So one day? Two, three. It was three <laughs> days, really, for me this year. It's sort of a, a bit of an elongated Christmas period, but really enjoyable on the whole. How about yourself? It was good. It was good. I got to watch a handful of films, I think, which is Oh, that helpful. might have some relevance. Yes, for, for helpful for this show, I think. Minutes. So coming up on today's show, we're going to go through, first of all, films that we've seen recently, as we always do. We'll get to a discussion on some of the nominations for festival season and basically the festival season in general. So, yeah, and more of a discussion about awards films rather than specific nominations, because we're aware that any news out there, you can find those on. So we wanted to take it and be a little bit different with it and talk about awards films in general. Yeah, and I think that the sort of trawling through nominations could be a bit of a tiring format for looking at these things. So, it yeah. certainly would be for us. <laughs> Absolutely. And then last of all, we just want to get to some comments made by um, a filmmaker we're both quite fond of, David Cronenberg, uh, in relation to online film journalism and print film journalism, a topic that is quite close to the centre of obviously what we do and something that we talked about way back on maybe the first or second episode mm. of this show that we recorded. First of all, though, a couple of announcements vis-a-vis -vis the site and the show, really, I think, Paul. What's changed? Well, firstly, we are aware that the site, having been focused on independent films and short films, and the podcast where we talk more about multiplex releases and sort of bigger films, we have been more than aware that they've kind of become two separate entities. Mm. Now, what we want to do, we still want to support grassroots filmmakers, absolutely still submit your films for review. We will still review them as long now as they are available to be seen somewhere. Yeah. Otherwise... Reviewing something that can never, ever be watched kind of defeats the object of having it up. Yeah, we basically want to build the connection between ourselves and the audience so that people reading things on strangersinacinema.com, our site, are going to be able to have access to the finished product, as you say. Um, they can then join in the conversation, give their opinions about those films. We found sometimes in the past access to things that we're reviewing for the general public is quite tricky it's quite difficult to get your hands on some of those things online uh, physically and so on and so we're really trying to align ourselves with a a two-way discussion with an mm. audience i would say and trying to put content on the site that will develop that conversation yeah because of course this site that we work on together isn't simply about us giving um our opinion and our take and then leaving it there to just kind of echo on its in back in on itself but rather we want people to get back at us and say mm. you know you're wrong about this you're right about this you've made interesting points here and I think the best way that we can do that is by diversifying a little bit what it is we're doing with reviews yeah. and features and so on but at the same time what we will then do is you will hear us talk about more short films and the films that we've currently been reviewing on the site up until now those will then hit the podcast more yeah. so basically we want to be in a situation where one relates to the other absolutely. one enhances the other absolutely and I think that's that's the perfect position for us going into 2015 and I think for anyone listening right now it should be pretty exciting I think to see the website develop over the coming months because it will come closer and closer in line with the podcast both of which I think can grow exponentially with enough hard work and, and dedication so the changes that you guys will see essentially you'll now get reviews of films like Birdman, for example, which we'll discuss later, alongside films such as James Weber's Saw. Yeah. 
So we're not going to completely commercialise the site. You're probably not going to see a review of the next Transformers film. You're probably not going to see a review of the new Avengers film. We may talk about it briefly on the podcast, but we're still going to try and keep it slightly more alternative films, offbeat films, but broaden it. Yeah, and the idea really that we've been talking about is that the focus of our site is films that are worth seeing. Full stop. Full stop, yeah. So if this film is a five-minute short made you know, by a, a person who had £50 to spend, mm. or the film is indeed a £50 million feature film that is just very interesting in some specific way, or worthy of discussion for some particular reason, then that is our remit. Yeah, films that, that are interesting, essentially. Absolutely, and I think that's the, the perfect position for Strangers going forward. So, with that all in mind, uh, you mentioned it already... First section of today's show, things that we've seen recently, number one on the list is Birdman. Birdman, yes. Directed by... Oh, have a go. Alejandro... Gonzalez. Gonzalez Inaratu. Inaratu. I think, I think it's close enough. I don't think we're far off. Yeah. Um, who has directed such films as Amores Peros, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. Babel, divisive, but I quite liked it myself. Yeah. Uh, what else is 21 Grams. 21 Grams, which I... I I did not like very Beautiful, much. Beautiful, I think was him with it, Olivia Bardem. Yeah. Kind of does these kind of meet in the middle kind of disparate narratives that all cross over and Narrative certain, that all crash together. together yeah. They all crash together in the middle, Pete. I know you're a fan of, of Crash, which well, is kind of should have been the death knell of the genre. The but no, Birdman is is by that director um, a departure from that kind of filmmaking um, and a very interesting film actually and a very very interesting role for Michael Keaton yeah so the, the basic setup here if you haven't seen the, the trailer I guess uh, Michael Keaton plays a guy who about 10 years previous I think maybe more uh, was well known for being in the Birdman series of big budget kind of comic book adaptation films he made a name for himself he clearly made a lot of money and had a lot of success there but now what he's trying to do as a late middle-aged man is launch or develop his career on stage on Broadway Broadway, yeah and get a a sort of level of respect that relates more to artistry I suppose than box office receipts and the film itself pretty much follows him around the backstage area of the theatre where this production that he's putting on will take place with what is a, a conceit I believe borrowed somewhat from Alfred Hitchcock's film Rope which is this seemingly unbroken take Mm. there are cuts we know there are cuts but it's an interesting device and it really kind of pulls you into the slightly labyrinthine bowels it feels a bit like West Wing in places where the camera's following in from room to room yeah and I think the 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 choice to keep it in the theatre actually thought really well worked really well it's not the film I expected Mm. at all I for some reason, maybe the way, it, probably the way it was marketed, I expected to see a lot more of the Birdman, the Birdman character himself, who rarely appears. In fact, the scenes in the trailer are probably the only scenes the Birdman actually really appears in. It's a bizarre film, but mm. I really liked it personally. Yeah, I mean, the film, as you say, it, it's not. If you go in thinking this is a superhero film about a character named Birdman, you couldn't be further from the truth. It's absolutely the the antithesis. And it's not that. really a superhero film, is it? No, it's a film about wanting more than you currently have. And it's a film about trying to recapture or maintain a level of sort of self-regard, self-respect and, and sense of self, I think, that you, where you can sort of sleep at night and be comfortable with yourself. And I think Michael Keaton's character in this film is really struggling, not just with... It, it's 
painted as if his struggle is with his position within the arts world and the theatre world and the, and the cinema world, but really it's his position in life. He's ageing. The, the director makes a great, a great effort, I think, in this film at showing the lines on people's faces, mm. kind of age creeping in under the eyes and the wrinkles at the, at the corners of his eyes and things like that. And Michael Keaton looks old. Mm. He looks old in this film and that's not a mistake. No. And this, remember, as we all do, this is a man who has played a very significant superhero well, and in this, Hollywood. This is, we were, we were discussing this the other day actually, this is where, is it a brave role for Keaton to step into considering he has played Batman and his career did kind of go nowhere after Batman and he slipped into support in roles, more supporting roles. He's come back in a few roles, he's been decent, I think he's been decent in the roles he's had. Mm-hmm. He's one of the best things about the Robocop remake. Apparently he turns up in Need for Speed is quite good in that, which I haven't seen the film myself. But it's but horrible, but yeah, I he may well, well, but, well be good in it. So he seems to have cropped up and has, has been good in smaller roles. But what we were saying is, for me, I think it's a brave choice to kind of go, okay, well, I will hold my hands up and go, yeah, I was A-list and now I've slipped. Hmm. But you seem to have a slightly different take on it, I think. Well, no, I, I basically agree. I mean, it's a perfect role for Michael Keaton because mm. it is that sort of postmodern approach whereby you take your actual existence and then make it into an, a fiction, but the fiction is such a close amalgam with non-fiction yeah. that it allows you to sort of explore the nature of at least... Like we were talking about 20,000 Days on Earth and the yeah. way that that Nick Cave documentary, if you didn't listen to the last episode, Nick Cave documentary um, on Paul's list of best films of 2014, on our list really, is a film that is documenting the day-to-day life of a guy, but it's not entirely without sort of fictional uh, narrative some, control yeah. Or, yeah. or input. And I think... That's the most interesting thing about Birdman is like the way that it makes you think about Michael Keaton the person, Michael Keaton on screen and Michael Keaton in this role and by association yourself, I suppose, and the way that you feel or where you feel you're positioned in life, how happy you are with that, whether you have hope for the future or whether you want to sort of fly away literally or or, uh, metaphorically from your current position. Mm. And so I think those issues are dealt with very well, and we shouldn't forget to mention, I think, in in this at this point, Edward Norton. In this yes, film. it's not just about Michael Keaton. Yeah. There are Emma Stone's, I think, good in the supporting role as Emma Stone daughter. plays his daughter. Yeah, Edward Norton again as an as a well, he's like the Broadway star, isn't he? Yeah, and again, like sort of, you could say slightly easy or predictable, but perfect Edward Norton fodder this role because he gets to swagger in. He's a tremendous actor, and the role is to swagger onto a set and be a, a tremendous, tremendous actor. actor yeah. So again, you've got that lining up of the fiction with the reality of the situation and it, there's great pleasure at least for me in watching Edward Norton go into a position where he's so comfortable I mean being kind of an asshole and and cut above everybody else mm. on screen I mean this is the position that he has occupied in a number of films where he is just playing a role rather mm. than playing a role about playing a role uh, it sounds convoluted it's really not as complicated as it sounds Birdman but um, yeah Emma Stone you mentioned really really good I think the best scene in the film is between Emma Stone and Michael Keaton. And it's the scene where Michael Keaton comes into the room and thinks that his daughter might have been either drinking or doing some kind of uh, intoxicant substance because I think she's sort of in rehab at this point. She has been in rehab. She's been in rehab, right. And there's this scene where rather than be apologetic 
and simply say, yeah, I've been smoking a joint and I'm sorry and I've kind of relapsed a little bit. She goes on the offensive against her dad. That, you feel you do feel for Keaton's character in that but the, in but, that the, but the diatribe that she gives is both sort of immature, as you'd expect from her character, and also extremely prescient, I think, because the, the dialogue that she delivers is all about you don't understand the modern world. You don't even have, I don't know, a Facebook account mm. or whatever. You have no online presence. No one cares. You're a joke. Your videos go viral <laughs> because they're... If because they you're do, a joke. Yeah. yeah, because you're a joke. People will laugh at you, but basically you're irrelevant and we're all irrelevant. And I think that, for me, that, that sort of grabbed me around the throat mm. because it's one of those things that is... Yeah, it's simple, it's a cliche, but that is true nowadays. I think it is that, it's that exchange where the film, I think, grabs you. It, mm. It's good up until that point, but it's that exchange where you go, oh... Shit. Like. Yeah, and great re- like reactive acting as well because she delivers this line. She knows she's hurting him. He's a 60-year-old mm. man, I, I would guess, mid-50s, late-50s, standing in front of her, her dad, who she clearly loves but he's angry with at this point. And then after she said all these hurtful things, the camera doesn't leave her face. It stays on her reaction mm. and the processing of what she's just said sort of through her eyes and the movement of her facial muscles, I think is one of the best bits of acting mm. I've ever seen from Emma Stone and for me, kind of the high point of the I would say that's probably one of the high points of the film Um, yeah also nice use of what we think is the carpet from The Shining I was looking for a better place to kind of segue that in certainly but there wasn't so yeah but but, no it brings brings an important point which I think is the film is very movie literate yeah there are a lot we mentioned rope before with the one take take. um, seemingly single take yeah, the carpet in one shot, as we were yeah. saying. There's a camera pullback. There's a long corridor going mm-hmm. off into the distance. And it, I'm pretty certain it is yeah. the carpet from The Shining. Alejandro, if you're listening, spot us a comment. Spot yeah. is. Yeah. Let's, let's know if we're right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, lots to recommend, Birdman, I think. Good performances, as we mm. said. I mean, the end of the film, I think, will divide people, perhaps. Yeah, it might I mean, feel a bit unsatisfying for some. I don't know. It's an odd ending. I liked it, I think, but haven't quite sunk in on that ending yet. Moving on, though, what else have we watched? Well, we've got a couple of things that are really, really big at the moment and playing in theatres. We thought we'd get to first Bennett Miller's new film. This is Foxcatcher. Bennett Miller is the director who's made quite a name for himself without having a great deal of output. He directed Moneyball. And going back before that, his uh, sort of breakthrough directorial effort was Capote. Which won Philip Seymour Hoffman Best Actor at the Oscars, but the film didn't win. I don't think the film won Best Picture. No, I'm pretty sure it didn't. If they're wrong, tell us, but I'm fairly sure it was Seymour Hoffman winning for Best Actor. So Mm. not massively prolific, but what he does is... Quality quality over quantity, it seems like, with with Bennett Miller. And and this thing, again, filling in the background on, on Foxcatcher, is a story I think that we both sort of We'd seen the trailers, we knew a little bit about it. We know that it's about collegiate wrestling. Um, Channing Tatum and Mark Ruffalo are brothers. They're training for the World Championships and subsequently the Olympics. They both have Olympic gold medals, I think from the 1984 Olympics, was the previous Olympics. And now they're sort of in training for the 88 Olympics, which are gonna take place in Seoul. Which is an interesting theory in itself, like where do you go after winning an Olympic gold medal? which is which is one of the film one of the film's strengths. I think. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. What's next? The film opens mm. up with Channing Tatum's character displaying his gold medal to sort of a gape. Um, that sounds like the wrong choice of words. What I'm going to say next? Gape <laughs> school children. Yeah, gape yes. school children. No, there there are a group of school children watching on as he gives a speech about what it takes to win a gold medal. But you've got these kind of blank expressions on their faces. And I think some of them are kind of impressed, and some of them are a bit like perturbed by the fact that this kind of awkward 
lunk of a guy who's not he's very the, articulate no, is, is talking that's about that's his, a fair point I think but yeah I mean f- kick off Paul I mean what was your take on, on Foxcatcher we saw it together this one actually it's not a story although we I was kind of aware of the characters it's not a story I was particularly familiar with with John DuPont Steve Carell is the big is the big talking yeah, boy almost unrecognisable at the end almost unrecognisable kind of takes a little bit of getting used to to start with I think because when actors when actors do do that there's always that question of, oh, is this the one where they make themselves look different? Is it like a stunt role? Yeah. yeah. Is, is it like, is this the weight loss film or is this a stunt role? And then Charlize Theron in Monster or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, it, it, she looks so different, therefore it's a good, and it is a good performance in that case. So, well, but yeah, you, yeah. you, you have a suspicion. So I was, again, it had been well hyped. I was a little bit concerned with the Steve Carell performance. I don't dislike the guy in some of his output. I think he's okay as a comedian it's fantastic in the American Office fantastic which I haven't seen much of admittedly really 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 good so he has his comedy moment so again a little bit sceptical going into the performance thankfully proved wrong I thought Steve Carell was fantastic as John John DuPont Mm. very very creepy role absolutely terrifying on screen presence yeah so to to fill in on this so we mentioned the, the brothers, these um, Schultz, the Schultz, Schultz, brothers. Schultz brothers. So Mark, Mark um, and, and Dave Schultz, yeah. played by Channing Tatum and Mark Ruffalo. They are asked by John DuPont, Steve Carell's character, to come to meet him. And actually it's Channing Tatum's character, first of all, Mark Schultz, who goes to meet DuPont, not knowing anything really about this guy, other than he seems to be quite wealthy. He's flown out in a, in a helicopter onto the estate of John DuPont, who happens to be one of, if not the most I think the family is the wealthiest in America America at at the time from the DuPont chemical empire that's right and he is propositioned by Carell's character with the idea that he wants him to move on to the estate into state of the art wrestling facilities that have been built um, with you know inexhaustible amounts of money that he has at his disposal and he wants to train Tatum's character to compete at the world championships and following on with the Solar Olympics. Olympics. And you, from the outset of this meeting, there's this weird sort of uncomfortable tension. I mean, the John DuPont character is very odd. I think the atmosphere, the actual kind of uncomfortable atmosphere, starts even before John DuPont arrives Mm. on scene because the the opening wrestling scene between um, Dave and Mark, I felt that was quite uncomfortable anyway. There was kind of this odd odd tension between the brothers that I think came across in that wrestling so I think the the atmosphere of the film I think is one of its strengths I think that starts early and is probably enhanced rather than established by Carell's character when DuPont turns up because he is he's a terrifying guy mm. yeah you because physically he's a sort of febrile and, and impotent looking and you, you know that he can't do anything as a wrestler like you know that this guy is saying I'm going to train you but he's not really going to train him he's not got a huge background in wrestling he likes wrestling mm. and he's trying it, all his life, it seems, he's been trying to move away from the, the dominating influence of his mother. His mother's into uh, horse horse, riding, horse yeah. sports, yeah, yeah and, and sort of riding around on their private land on horses. He's not really interested in that. He wants to focus on wrestling. And I think that the whole idea of wrestling to him is sort of a, a connection that he could forge with the common man and with physicality that he doesn't have and with sort of brotherhood that he's never experienced. And all of these themes are pushed or he attempts to sort of pull them into his own life by essentially taking Mark Schultz's character prisoner because he can leave anytime he likes sure Mm. but he can't leave anytime he likes because he's getting paid a fortune and he's got nothing else yeah he strikes a a tragic figure I think and there's there is a times where as much as you are kind of terrified of him at times there are also times when you you genuinely feel for him a bit he's kind of an awkward his mum paid for him to have a friend as a child for example um but 
onto the film itself, I think that it's an exercise in, in, in a tense drama. I think it's it's up there with one it's up there with, with one of the best films I've seen recently in terms of a tense drama. I think it's gripping for the most part from start to finish. Tatum himself again is def- developing as an actor in a good way. I think. I think when he first launched onto the scene, yeah, he's got the physique, yeah, he's got the looks, but he wasn't much more than that. And the mannerisms, though, I was so impressed early on with the way he he walks like he's a collegiate wrestler. Yeah, which sounds like a funny thing to say, but it's it's so so clear compared mm. with the the regular. Game Mark of, Ruffalo does it as well with the the sort of stance. Mark Ruffalo is almost yeah. always in a wrestling stance. He, he is. He's always ready to like tap a leg or go for a double leg at like <laughs> yeah. any time. Yeah, it's a great performance by Mark Ruffalo. I think in in many many scenes in the. Film. I think it's it's a it's a worthwhile it's a very worthwhile film. Well worth a watch, I think. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's your catchphrase. That's um, my catchphrase, yes. Yeah, there's something here, and the, for me, I'm going to call this subsection the problem with this film, and it's a very specific problem that I feel... I, I agree with Paul. I think the atmosphere builds. I think the drama and tension builds. It's quite slow. Um, the pacing is very deliberate. It's a very quiet film as it's well. very quiet. There are scenes where you feel as if that's almost a, a mistake, and then mm. you realise that it isn't, and it's just kind of leading you back into yeah. this icy world of, of surfaces. Yeah. But the problem for me is what Bennett Miller has decided to do in showing a relationship that exists between collegiate wrestling and mixed martial arts, which, I mean, obviously I'm going to admit at this point that I come at this as a quite a big mixed martial arts fan, but here are the... Um, the world's only film podcaster stroke MMA <laughs> <laughs> Here is the evidence for the prosecution. So... There is a scene in this film where the guys on the wrestling team are on the Foxcatcher facility and they're all sat around and they're watching a video on the television which is of a fight, clearly an MMA fight, where a guy is in uh, a particular position. I won't bore you with MMA specifics, but he's in a position where he's getting elbowed in the head and they all sort of balk at this and they say, oh man, look at that, it's gross, disgusting. And then somebody says very pointedly, oh, I'm sure he's making good money. This is the first dig that Bennett Miller makes at MMA. Now, the problem with that scene is the scene is supposed to be taking place in 1988. MMA in that form didn't exist until 92 or 93. And worse than this, one of the uh, fighters in that bout that that you see on the screen is a fighter called Gary Goodridge. They name him. Gary Goodridge didn't start fighting for for the UFC as it was in its early days and fighting MMA till the early 90s. So what that scene is, is a lie about the relationship between MMA so and wrestling. It's a, it's a, and it's, for me, I mean, I'm not as much of a fan of the sport as you, if, if, if I am a fan at all, in fact. But I would agree with your point that it does seem to, it's a cheap shot at mm. MMA. The film doesn't need to take cheap shots at other sports. Now, whether it like it or loathe it, MMA is now a respected sport in 2015. So therefore, it just, it for a film that seems to pride itself on, on telling a true story, to try and be accurate, to, to have to have Carell go under such a physical transformation, to try and have accuracy, to then take cheap shots at another sport does kind of take something and, away from the film. And, and, this, and this would sound like a very picky point in isolation, okay, there's one scene with a video, but no, because this is very significant to combat sports, because if the movie is about, and it's, okay, it's not really about wrestling, we get it, it's about it's psychology and it's about friendship and togetherness and, and separation and fragmentation and all these things, but on the surface it's a movie about wrestling, right? It's about collegiate mm. wrestling and it's about being the best wrestlers in the world. Now, there is a big relationship between MMA and wrestling because so many of the best MMA fighters now come from an American collegiate wrestling background. And there's a definite debate that has raged about whether 
because there's no money in collegiate wrestling, once you go beyond the college level and maybe, you know, even Olympic level wrestlers, if you want to be a professional wrestler, good luck with that, because you're not going to make a living unless you're making, you know, uh, guest appearance speeches and so on, writing a book. There's no competitive money in wrestling. But the, what this film tries to do is say, oh, well, in 1988, when these guys were fighting, MMA was already getting its claws in and tempting people to get pounded in the face mm. just so that they could make a buck, so that they didn't have to live on a ranch with a creepy Steve Carell character who may or may not try and threaten them with a gun at some point. So, Which just isn't true. Yeah, which absolutely isn't true. And when the film finishes, he closes out the film with, oh, you know... Mark Schultz has fallen so low that he's walking into a cage to fight MMA. Yeah. Like, how could it have got worse? Even the events that have happened before, no spoilers, are not as bad as what he's no, doing it, now, throwing away his health. It doesn't kill the film, but it is worth mentioning. But, but it's, it's worth mentioning because it's so odd to me. Because mm. I think Bennett Miller's a very intelligent film director. I think the film is very deliberately paced. And so if it were a, a more loose, slack film director, you'd think, oh, it's a mistake. It's a historical inaccuracy. He doesn't really care about this issue. But no, I think it's in there to push an agenda, an agenda that's really uncomfortable in a film that's otherwise very intelligent. Moving on. Moving on, Pete, yes. Are you feeling okay after that? Yeah, I mean... Got well, that off your chest? Well, I think, I think it needs... I haven't seen that said elsewhere. I'm sure it has been. I didn't really want to read too much because I don't want to retread other people's words. But, um, yeah. Let's move on to something that's going to get both of us equally fired up. And that is the latest instalment in the Hobbit trilogy. The Hobbit. The Battle of Five Armies? Five, All five armies. You're waiting. You're counting them in when that battle takes place about 14 hours into this one. <laughs> um, what do you make of it, Paul? I think... I think you're going to have more positive to say about The Hobbit than me, but I don't know, so go ahead. Right, now, I came into The Battle of the Five Armies having having sat through in the same cinema sitting uh, an unexpected... Is it? Is the first one called An Unexpected Journey? The first it one is, is called An Unexpected Journey. Then sat through The Desolation of Smaug, then followed by The Battle of the Five Armies. So I watched all three back-to-back in one long, 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 long night. I can't even imagine. Um, at the point where we came out of the second film, it looked like people had been on a long-haul flight, and we were, this was supposed to be an enjoying pastime. Would I do it again? No. Did I come out of all three Hobbit films going, did I just go to that because I didn't do it at Lord of the Rings? Probably. Because although The Battle of the Five Armies is an entertaining film, The Hobbit films as a trilogy just aren't that good is it a weaker trilogy to you than Lord of the Rings yes yeah see to me too and I, and I come at this from being someone who I read The Lord of the Rings as a young uh, child I, probably at 10 or 11 when I read that book and there are sections of that as a 10 or 11 year old where I thought Jesus they are walking a lot Mm. Um, this was I guess my problem with Lord of the Rings as a trilogy but some spectacular enjoyable stuff in there and in this one in this thing too this trilogy but yeah the same type the same issues occur with each instalment of The Hobbit for me which are cut at least half an hour if not an hour of this well stuff. the problem is and it's it's a much discussed problem so I'm not going to hark on about it too much they turned one book into three films mm-hmm. okay that's fine they did it it was a, it's a cynical cash exercise. It's without, a cash who, grab. You what, can't argue that it isn't. You I can't argue that it isn't. Or it Peter is. Jackson just but, loves The Hobbit that much. Fine, he does, but it doesn't mean you have to charge people however, 35, 40 quid. However, that's happened, and we are left with the three films that we are left sure. with. First one, far too long. Perhaps could have done it in two films. Desolation of Smog, I thought, was a bit better. This film, The Battle of the Five Armies, is just, it's an entertaining sort of two-and-a-half-hour battle. There's not really a great deal going on. Certainly, as a standalone film, I don't think I don't think it could be watched as a standalone film. 
Mm. Whereas I think possibly the other the other Hobbit the other Lord of the Rings films probably if you hadn't seen one you probably could get away with it. It's just a long battle scene and it is entertaining. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of walking to get to the battle scene or like walk it or like there's one character with a moustache and I think he's the like comic relief character, you know the one that I mean? And I find him irritating from the first bit of comic relief but when they do the like 10th scene it's like this guy doesn't care about other people. Have you got that point yet? No, he's going to do something else selfish. Like, oh man, it's just tiring I think. And the, the shame is though because I don't want to come, I don't want to just talk about The Hobbit and say oh it's terrible and boring and long because, because it's 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 not terrible but the problem you've got with The Hobbit is A it's too long it's one book stretched out B Lord of the Rings has already happened like the sense quite of recently the well. sense of scale in the big battle scenes in Battle of the Five Armies yes it's impressive but it's been done and I think the, the first time you see it done I think and this is where Lord of the Rings for me peaked is in Two Towers where Gandalf turns up on horseback and saves the day and rides down the hill, and you go, fuck yes, because that bit is amazing. Now, the problem is, that was the first time we've seen kind of fantasy battles of that size on screen. To keep doing it ad infinitum, mm. it's never going to look as impressive. Yes, it looks good, but all it reminds you of, you go, oh, yeah, this is like the bit in Two Towers, but not quite as good. Yeah, that's sort of like, I think you said, but that wow factor mm. early on it, I mean we're in a different time now I mean yeah it's a good looking film but of course out. it's going to be a good looking film with the budget it's got but yeah and I think even in the Hobbit trilogy because I've been taking along my uh, girlfriend loves these films so we're going to go to everyone and if they do some more we'll go to those two but there are some absolutely virtuoso bits of and that's stage such a action shame. Yeah, it's such a but shame they're so diluted mm. by just like minutes and minutes of pad, padding and filler and kind of Law that if I understand if you are deep into this Tolkien stuff then maybe you want just give me more of that make it four hours make it five great <laughs> knock yourself out and I'm really glad it exists for you for me and from my vantage point I'm massively relieved that it's over now and Peter Jackson please go do something else now do something else the, the, I think it's it's a shame that the, the MGM had all the issues they had because if MGM hadn't had the issues and the film hadn't been delayed as it was then Del Toro would have been directing I think that would have been a very different proposition mm. and I think that would possibly would have made for three better films. The problem what the problem with the Hobbit is not that they're bad films, they're not. They're okay films. They're what the first one's a bit slow but still watchable. The second one, again, a little bit slow at the beginning, for me picks up towards the end. The third one, kind of for me, kind of decent pace all the way through, enjoyable film. But the problem is they won't ever be Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and the point is, I mean you know, why not then this show, let's make this show and we'll make it every couple of weeks and we're going to do it five hours. We're going to do a five hour cut of the show every time. We'll put that up. And, when and we friend, can extend the scene well, when you talk about MMA. Absolutely. We'll do like, an, <laughs> I'll do an hour on that monologue. And then when our friends feedback to us, you know, the last one that you did, guys, it, it was good. There were good things in there, but I lost interest because it was five hours long. That's absurd. Nobody else is making five hour podcasts and especially not of this kind. Well, okay, so what a normal person would do is say, okay, I'm going to make some concessions for my audience or the bulk of the audience and say, okay, we'll cut a bit out. Maybe it'd be two hours, but not in Peter Jackson's case. No, Pete Jackson, he'll just, you know, no. storm on with three, yeah, it's three a plus hour films. I'd say it's still, it's still worth a watch on the cinema screen. It's, you know, it looks I like want a horror movie. film. No. I want a Peter Jackson, just like grody, nasty horror yeah. film. It's not going to happen, but it would no, be No, it would be nice for him to go back to his roots, wouldn't it? Something else. Something else I wanted to squeeze into this section is a film that I caught up with, which is not new, but it is Rachel Getting Married from a number of years, about 2007. Directed by Jonathan Demme. Jo Jonathan yeah. Demme, or is it Jonathan Demme? Who knows? I think <laughs> Jonathan Demme sounds less uh, pretentious. 
Yeah, Jonathan Demme's film starring uh, Anne Hathaway in a fine performance, in my humble opinion, that, yes. um, supported by Rosemary DeWitt, who's an actress I like quite a bit. I talked about her in Touchy Feely not long ago, uh, a mumblecore film, I, I guess. And also... Keep dropping those mumblecore references. T- Tunde, <laughs> Tunde, and I'm not even going to have a go at it. I think it's... A, a, no, let's not this, try. The guy from... Tunde out of TV on the radio. Yeah. Let's go with that. Um, if you know that band, you know who I'm talking about. Really sort of surprising to see him crop it there because I was like, I recognise this guy from somewhere. Had to look into it. He's the singer in a band and that's why he has... I was like, why is this guy's resume so... Lim- oh, I see. He's been yeah. making hugely successful records for a decade. Um, yes, the reason to bring up Rachel getting married. We recently did a special, I'm sure you're aware, on the film Interstellar. And in Interstellar, same actress, Anne Hathaway, had a fairly significant role. And we bemoaned, to a certain degree, the limits of that role and how some of the decision-making of her character was ludicrous. And she had to deliver those lines and the dialogue was a bit flat. This film is a reminder of just how good of an actress I think Anne Hathaway is when she's given good material. Rachel Getting Married deals with her, again, thematically linked with um, Emma Stone in in Birdman. She Mm. comes out of rehab and the reason that she reunites with her family is because her sister, Rachel, is getting married. Is that a link to the title? It is indeed. (laughs) And as soon as she arrives on the scene, there is this again a sort of a friction and awkwardness around her because she wants to talk about her recovery her enlightenment her um, making amends as you have to on the 12-step program making amends with people that you've uh, harmed in the past and as much as people want in her family her sister included want to support her in her recovery they're also aware of her sort of solipsistic um, slightly, yeah, just she's just a very self-involved, self-obsessed almost character. But at the same time, and to credit Anne Hathaway's performance, is still not outright bad. No, I would agree, I would agree with that. You, from a performance, you still yeah. you don't root for her. And I kind of hate it when people talk about rooting for protagonists yeah. or not. But you you feel that she's a real three-dimensional human being. She's a believable she's a believable character. She is. Despite she, being painted as kind of slightly larger than life kind of And she's shitty person. in like ways that we are shitty. Like yeah. the ways that we behave in a in a negative way and manipulate other people at times or, or think only of ourselves at times. And so the drama plays out a bit like something like um the celebration, the the dogma film, yeah. the Thomas Winterberg film, where you've got a big social gathering which is supposed to be just fun and great times and great memories and photos, and then you've just got one like hand grenade thrown mm. into the middle of that, and the rest kind of takes care of itself. I mean, from mem- I haven't seen it for many years, but it's from memory it works. What, one of the things that works very well of it is just how grounded and it does feel the dark. The script is fantastically well written. All, all the conversations that take place between the characters. Especially some of the tent scenes at the wedding mm. the, is the wedding rehearsal, isn't it? Where you've got the, some of the tent scenes. Yeah, it's speeches, just, amazing you, speeches. You kind of you you could feel like you were sitting at that table, and you know exactly how that feels. It's just it's a fantastic script. It's a very subtle film, I think, mm. in some of in some of the messages it delivers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and it's got this kind of handheld approach to party scenes mm. and even that stuff with the speeches, which is it works really well, and it works to the film's film's benefit, I think. So. Rachel Getting Married, if you haven't caught up with it... It's widely available on streaming services. It is. I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix UK at the moment. So do uh, check that out when and where you can. Yeah. 
Last of all, in this section, we've got something else to include. Which brings us to um, a short thriller uh, that we only watched this morning, in fact, called 2AM. This is directed by a guy called Chris Cronin and written by a guy called Jules T. Smith, who I'm led to believe did some work with Ealing Studios. Um, I don't know a great deal about the director. Uh, It's starring a guy called, an actor called Andrew Coppin, who you may remember from a film that we talked about called Eight Ball, that was another short film a while ago, which I think is very much worth a watch. Um, Pete, what were your initial thoughts on on 2AM? Yeah. It's an interesting premise, I think. Really good stuff, man. I mean, the setup in this one was pretty simple, sort of beautifully simple. The idea is that a murder takes place in a diner, uh, and it, this is discovered when a guy who runs in to use the toilet goes to the to- towards the mm. toilet, finds a, apparently finds a body covered in blood. He's covered in blood and walks out. And then there's a standoff because one guy in the diner says, "I did that. That murder. That was mm. me. I, I'm the killer." But did he? Yeah. But did I? And maybe you did it. Yeah. Maybe she did it. Maybe any one of us did it. And of course, the immediate reaction we're is, not, no, we didn't, we're innocent. And, and we're not going to tell you who did it. Oh, of not, course not. We're not going to spoil it for you. But I think, for me, I think it, when some of the stand-up points, it looked fantastic. Mm. Yeah, looked, really high production values, yeah. really nice kind of low lighting, and it had a kind of American diner feel to it, even though it was a, a UK production. Yeah, uh, it looks, looked really nice. And not, not just high production values, I just think it was it was nicely shot. It was, um, yeah. That certainly, certainly adds something to a film. Performances, I thought, were good. Andrew Coppin, I think, for me, is all... I've not really seen him be bad in anything. Yeah, I mean, I thought at, at times that some of the dialogue... At times, it's only a 10-15-minute film, but at times some of the dialogue was sounded maybe a bit stagey or a bit sort of off the, the page, if that's the right way I would agree with that. There was, a cu- there was a couple of lines that, that perhaps felt a little bit flat. Not as naturalistic done, as yeah. you might have liked yeah. in the moment. But having said that, you know, not glaringly bad performances by any means. And the tension that was built by the premise definitely supported it, by the actors. To build, they, they to, to build tension in a 15-minute short, is, it's harder to build tension over a short period of time than it is over a feature. But um, this is this is why I love this kind of short film because when you've got that kind of simple conceit and you could explain that in a line or two to somebody and then you use your 10 or 15 minutes very economically to just develop that conceit into something engaging yeah. fantastic people I think often with shorts they try to do too much yeah, to is, reach too far of, and then yeah. it doesn't work it's a condensed feature film. a, lot of, the, a lot of the short films we've seen have been people trying to do too much within the time scale but this just and again such a great use of a single location again like if you're on a limited budget use one location yeah. and use it well yeah and in fact we never see the body in the toilet no it's all off yeah off camera, all off yeah. camera which is which is great so yeah um it's available online as well i think you said you can you can see this online Do you, you know can, where you can you see can it? see this online we will we'll post a link maybe yeah we'll, we'll post a link when we, when we post the episode we'll post a link there we'll and then anyone so you can find this film at i was in on it uk. that's i was in on it too and that's two with a double o dot co dot uk Yes. We'll link to that in the description of the podcast show notes, as well. Man. But I'm gonna, there's another thing for the new year, better show notes, yeah? What we yeah, talk about, yeah. great show notes, great links, look forward to that. So, as we mentioned earlier, that brings us nicely to award season, which we are certainly in the midst of at the moment, with the BAFTA nods have gone out. We said, as I said before, we're not going to listen now, you can find them on many, many websites. Um, everywhere, wrote, absolutely yeah. everywhere, in terms of like quote-unquote film journalism. We're not going to be far off the Oscar nominations coming out because that's in February. Um, What we're actually going to talk about more is just some of the issues, I think, that we have with awards films. Now, I'm not saying... That's not to say that we disagree fundamentally with films being awarded because I think it is quite a nice idea that you recognise the best films of the year. 
However, what we're more going to focus on is awards films. By awards films, Pete, do you want to elaborate on that? By what well, we mean? yeah, or? I mean, when we, we thought about this segment, we, were, we got to a, the conclusion that there seemed to be, and it's not exactly, it's not an original position to take, I don't think, particularly, but there seemed to be a certain type of film that is made with Oscars and awards already in mind and seems to be almost machine-tooled to tick a certain number of boxes that will deem it worthy of that particular. Well, we can't. Let's mention. Well, let's mention. Let's mention two in particular. The, yeah. the recent, the Imitation Game, and yeah. the Theory of Everything. Now, we will both admit. I don't think we've seen either, have we? No, I mean that's appalling given this discussion. But yeah, that, however, that will change. Very however, soon. but they don't hugely appeal. No, no, and, and, and this, this is the point. This is yeah. the reason for that because you watch the trailer and you think, "Oh, okay, I see. It's just coming up to award season. Here's a film about a historically significant figure that is almost beyond reproach." Now there's going to be a very respectful two-hour sort of here's a young, up, here's a young up-and-coming actor or an old established actor. Yeah, here's that box checked historical biopic, and you know how this film is going to play out, no matter who's in the role. Not just because they're historical characters, but they're going to check boxes. And I think the, the point we were making earlier is, would either of those films exist if it wasn't to win awards? So are those films just being made to win awards? Then in which case, surely that then cheapens the awards process. I guess the flip side of this, for me as well, is that like there are certain films that you just know... Maybe it's not quite the inverse, but films that are never going to get close to winning an Oscar because of the subject matter. Or the because, genre. Because of the genre, yeah. Because they might not be entirely favourable in their depiction of Hollywood, for example. They're out. Yeah. I mean, linking this section with what we'll talk about last, David Cronenberg's movie Maps to the Stars, it's not to get close to the Oscars. Now, in that case, I don't think it deserves to on merit, but... A film of that sort would never, ever... It might be on From the I've heard the performances, perhaps, Merit. There, there are some good performances mm. in there, but, I mean, this is a thing about, about holly, like, vacuous, self-centred Hollywood husks of people. That kind of story is not going to sell to an academy made up of people who are patting each other on the back for being yeah. part of new Hollywood. Like, it's just not going to happen. But, sorry, that's a slight uh, divergence from the theme, which is... Yeah, and these films, the fact that these films exist, then perhaps force other films out of the awards picture. For example, I mean, genre piece sci-fi never gets a look in, no. ever. The Academy seems to hate sci-fi. Now they kind of okay, it's BAFTA nominations, but the Oscars are the big one, and that's what everyone talks about. Horror films too. Horror films never seem to get a look in. Now the Oscars have obviously. I think it was the year the Dark Knight didn't get nominated. People kicked up, and I love the Dark Knight, and I think perhaps it should have, whether it should have won or not, is another matter. I think perhaps it deserved the nomination in the Best Picture category. Is it as good as but, Paul Haggis's film Crash, though? No, because that's um, that's an Oscar winning. Film. Nothing's as good as Crash. But then the then Oscar decided that they would broaden the Best Picture nominations and maybe we'll nominate ten films. And all they've done is they've broadened that and people went, oh great, it recognise it recognise genre pieces. They give them a nod, but they still haven't got hope of winning. Yeah, yeah. And to to add to that and this sort of slightly sinister picture that emerges if you research a little bit about things like the Oscars, I read an article or a, a section of an article today that was talking about, uh, and I think the quote was. You you haven't not you haven't got a hope of winning an Oscar 
unless you spend an awful lot of money. Well, we looked at it, it was somewhere between five and up to, I think, $35 million. On the campaign On the campaign, alone. yeah. Not the production, not the marketing of the film to an audience, but the campaign for that prize. Because getting that prize and sticking it on your DVD or your Blu-ray is going to exponentially increase the sales potential of that thing in, in that sort of a medium. So... To me, that's deeply, deeply depressing. That for something to be acknowledged for the best art history, the best piece of art in this particular field of art, it needs to be the case. Well, it, that it locks everything. It locks a lot of other films out. Of course, it does. Like you know, where was, you know, for example, uh, Only Lovers Left Alive? That won't see a nomination. Under the Skin didn't see any nominations. Yes, they're genre pieces, but they're fantastic films in their own right. And I suppose the the directors of these films probably don't give a shit about the Oscars or Hollywood in general, but it just seems a shame because the Oscar tag can give another a film that otherwise wouldn't have got any public attention. It gives it a massive bump in, into the public eye. And it seems to be the awards are just given to films that are made to get these awards, so that kind of takes away from awarding the best art. It's just, this is made to get an Oscar and it will get an Oscar, so what's the point? But also, that tag could be given to films not based on the money they have to spend, could actually be given to little-known films then suddenly go, oh wow, these films, and then art house films can start making money again, which would be quite nice. And I just think it's and, and the funny thing is that, the funny thing is the, the, the obvious line, I guess, is to say that this is a separation between studio films and art house films. But it's even more endemic than that because it's a it's a difference between moneyed studio films yeah. and potentially just studio films that don't have as much money. Nebraska. Or, or yeah, studio films that don't aren't directed by somebody who's got friends in Hollywood or friends on the Academy or no, moves in the right circle. So this kind of closed shop, when it gets to giving, for example, Argo, the best picture Oscar, you see, oh, I see how this works. Ben Affleck is incredibly well ingratiated into the Hollywood system. He's made this kind of this kind of personal recovery story. Well, let's sort of factor and that Ar- into again. The... Argo was a decent. Argo's film, a perfectly good film, but, but it's not. It's not the. In what world is that the best film that came out that year? I mean, it, you, you feel like you're sort of you'll argue till you're blue in the face, and ultimately, the most mature thing you can do with the Oscars, I think, is just say, yeah, okay, that's going on over there. I'm aware of that. Um, I think I mentioned earlier on that I think I see the best picture as. For example, um, instead of being the best film of the year, it's the best Oscar film of the year. In, in my but, but, mind, again, and that, but that's a shame. It, and this, this is the point I'm trying to make. And that's a shame that you now have almost a genre that is Oscar films when the awards, and it's not just Oscars, it's Baftas, it's wherever really. Mm. Sort of gold, the Golden Bear. Actually, the Golden Bear and some of the more art house awards are honour a little bit different films and perhaps set up slightly in a different way. But certainly Oscar and BAFTA, you go, well, actually, that's the best awards film of the year. Mm. And that seems a shame. And that seems, so you're just awarding awards films, you know, where no one else seems to get a look in. But then, I mean, flip this thing into the into reverse and say the, the co- maybe very cold statement, I suppose, if you look at it and just say, okay, Hollywood filmmaking is an industry. It clearly is. People are making their livings off that industry. They are. This is spreading money through an economy. It is. And so that that industry and the engine of that industry simply wants to pour, uh, throw more coal onto the fire that's mm. going to keep it chugging along into the future at high speed. And the best way that you could possibly do that is to pile all the attention onto a few surefire, fairly middle-of-the-road films that everybody and their you know grandmother can, can get behind. Mm. And this way is lives great financial success. And so uh, it, it would be facile to simply 
like kick and scream every time the Oscars nominations come out like oh yeah I can't believe it of course you can believe and it I, happens and, every and year and I'm sure like the imitation game through of everything and I will reiterate I haven't seen them I'm not judging them as films I'm sure they're going to be technically very good films but they just feel a forced of and a, generic of kind, and, they, yeah. and this this is the problem I think that we've got is the idea of them, them isn't bad I'll watch them if you're into films it's, it's, it's a just, thing about films on television sure you know I'm, I'm into that it's but. just a shame that they're so, they're so close minded I think and I think people and the, the, your average person will look at an Oscar nomination and go oh my god that is the best film of the year mm. and I think that's my problem with it is they're not they don't recognise a wide enough selection of films whether it be genre whether it be funding that your average cinema goer your average person in the street is going to look at an Oscar nomination and go oh my god that's the best film of the year that's a must see yeah. and then go well it wasn't although or look at something and go oh that's a bit alternative that's a bit art house that's a bit alternative no Oscar nominations I'm not fucking watching that and that I think is a shame but, but it's, the, it's this sort of filtering that happens and, and is so pervasive now amongst society especially, especially in a sort of um, post-digital society where, you know in post-internet society that we live in now because you've got filtering of what's available to watch in the cinema we've talked about this before so you might have the best intentions as Joe average film goer to see the most interesting films but you're only offered a selection that has been deemed basically um monetizable to the greatest level by the studio or the distributor or whatever then you've got the whole issue that came up a year or two ago with SOPA and filtering of internet search results so what you search on the internet is going to be driven in a certain direction to draw attention to things that can make more money for bigger companies like it's not to end this as a sort of twitching paranoid in our <laughs> studio about you know the, the, the man and his sort of cold metallic hands around the throat of the, the common person but that is but the those world. Hands are there. That is the world that we live in. I mean, it just is. And so, I think to come out of this with any kind of a positive um, hop step into the, I'm the, struggling to take into the next part. Well, so please do. But I think the thing is to to sort of rally that that this energy and this um, these strong feelings into more and more effort being made in looking for and promoting and talking about and developing a discussion about filmmaking that is worth paying attention to and this goes back to the point that we were making in the beginning about the website and about our, our real life and I think going from what just don't take the Oscars as a given that are that or any awards nominated films don't take that as a given that they are the only really good films of the year because they're not there's a lot more out there that doesn't get recognized and perhaps should do and I think that's the point I would like yeah, to take yeah, away and from have this. the debate as and well. Have I managed the debate. to be positive. Absolutely, and have the debate. That's the best thing about something like the Oscars for me is like, okay, if we're going to say this is the best film of the year, tell me why. Mm. Tell me why that is a better film. And than... don't tell me because it won an Oscar because I was shut you exactly because it's putting the cart before the horse. If you're just talking mm. about awards being justification for the quality mm. of the film, so um, yes, I think there is positive here. I think we probably will end up watching the Oscars anyway. Yeah. I think we'll probably end up commenting on the Oscars as well, for what it's worth. Because it is a major event in film news. But an idea that we had to kind of follow on on a thing that we did last year, way back in the dark days of 2014, <laughs> um, the idea that we've had is that rather than doing an Oscars special of this show prior to that award ceremony, what we think we're going to do instead is the Strangers Awards Which special. we did last year, but we did. The Strangers did. Awards last year were all independent and short films. They were. Again, an effort to bring the site and the podcast closer together. We're going to go more generally, I think. And this is an idea that we've just come up with. Yeah. So bear with us. This may it's, change it's, format. It's kind of been brewing in the pipeline for a little while. But we think that, again, it's this, this idea about flattening the playing field as much as we can and saying... 
we want to give attention to films that are worth attention. It doesn't matter about budget. It doesn't matter about spending twenty five million on a campaign for a. If bit you of want it, also on that subject, if you want a stranger, then you know, send us some swag. If you want to go home with a stranger, you know, get yeah. on it. Let us know who should be nominated. It won't cost what you. Be it won't cost you twenty five million dollars. No, um, absolutely not. No. Um, so yeah, looking forward to that. That will be exciting. We'll do that. And also, so, I like the way you say you want to go home with a stranger. I think people are going to probably read the wrong thing into that. Thing, to be <laughs> That's the hook. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's both. Uh, yeah. It's both entertaining and deeply creepy. Both an award and a really crap night with one of us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, I didn't say it would be one of us. It could just be a, oh, just a stranger. Just a generic okay. stranger. No, in which yeah. case, yeah, worth it. Yeah, totally worth it. Okay, last item on the agenda for today then is something that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, and that it would be almost strange if we didn't make some kind stranger, of stranger perhaps <laughs> perhaps so if we didn't make some kind of comment about this and that is the quote that's been made by or series of quotes really by david cronenberg this week now david cronenberg even i think on my strangers uh, author profile on the website is one of for me was one of the most influential filmmakers growing up as a teenager getting into kind of film and horror and genre he's and stuff fantastic his early his early work is absolutely fantastic define yeah. define the genre uh, absolutely and david cronenberg as i'm sure many of you are still uh, or are, are aware is active now he makes he's 70 years old now probably but he's putting out stuff some i hope he is better, always very upset with you pete some better some <laughs> worse yeah well who knows i said mike nichols has got a new film coming out and he's dead so that didn't hold me back on the last show <laughs> Yes, David Cronenberg has said this. I think the role of the critic has been very diminished because you get a lot of people who set themselves up as critics by having a website where it oh, says oh. where it says that they're a critic. Cronenberg also adds that legitimate critics, mostly aligned with traditional media outlets, are losing clout to amateurs in the internet age. There are other people who just say they're critics and you read their writing and they can't write or they can write and their writing reveals that they're quite stupid and ignorant. Now... Weirdly, I was looking at the statistics for strangersinacinema.com and I noticed one David Cronenberg had been reading a lot of our articles, so this seems uh, okay. a little bit of a personal attack. <laughs> no, the reason to bring this up, obviously, we are... I hate it, I guess. I've got to come walk up. But we are internet film critics. I guess internet film fans, internet film contributors, who knows? That's kind of what we do. Paul, has this hurt your feelings? No, because to an extent, I agree with a lot of what he says. Um, I think he's he's generalising. I'd like to think that if he read one of my reviews, certainly not not probably not my early stuff when I was still learning. Um, I'd like to think if he read one of my reviews, he'd sit there and go, "Actually, that's fairly balanced." I'd hope I'd hope he thinks it's well written. I don't think I'm necessarily the greatest writer in the world. I think I've made progress, but no, I'm not the I'm not the complete article in the same way as someone like Mark Kermoder, a more established film critic. But I studied film for three years. I'm very passionate about the topic. I've panelled at short film festivals. I like to think I know what I'm talking about. The people I think he's talking about are, and it's difficult to say bloggers in general, but for me, someone blogging is just espousing their opinion with nothing to back it up. Yeah. So this is crap, that's crap, this is good, that's bad. Harry Knowles, for example, not a big fan of ethical news for me in the slightest. I think those are the people that he's talking about and I think yes it is a problem for film criticism and I think especially online film criticism there's a, a guy that I've spoken to in the past who said we've we've always seemed to establish this rules of print journalism where certain standards have to be met certain mm. boxes have to be ticked but yeah as soon as you go on the internet do what you want anyone can say I mean we, you know we set up this, I set up the website a couple of years ago got you involved and that's something that we've set up from our from our lounge and yes a few years ago 
you wouldn't have been able to do that. I still think that's a good thing about the internet, but you have people that just espouse opinion with nothing to back it up. Couple of points, yeah. One is this, um, I think this is the biggest takeaway for me, and it's the same, I think we talked about with like Mike Lee or someone like that a little while ago when we first started the podcast. Ken Loach. Ken Loach, that's right, yeah, Ken Loach. Says um, very similar comments to... Jim, Jimmy's Hall, was that his film that was on yeah. release at the time? Yeah. And he said, but yeah, basically the same thing, like print journalism, great, online journalism, terrible. Uh, when I spoke to Barry Norman in person, I upset him accidentally because we had this, I think I mentioned this before, we had this discussion about um, Philip Kemp, I think, uh, Philip French, excuse me, had just uh, retired and he was one of his favourites and he was sort of um, bemoaning the death of of print journalism, quality journalism as he saw it, it's kind of an amalgam of that. The problem I have with these comments is just the naivety about what it means to be an online critic these days because I think if you're writing things of quality or producing things of quality you rise to the top you get some attention people want to read your things and you get a following if your criticism is just about shouting the loudest or being the most controversial or just kind of blurting out the first thing that comes into your head once you step out of the theatre then I think people soon wise up to that. And if that's the film journalism they're looking for, good on them, they can have that. And I don't think that would have been any different with or without the internet, really. The other thing um, I think to mention here is, and maybe it's slightly uh, defensive, but that Ken Loach uh, comment came out around a time that Jimmy's Hall did very badly at the box office. And Match to the Stars Stars has not done particularly well. And And not that well critically either. And I think someone like Cronenberg does a lot of interviews and I think in one interview he's got slightly salty about something that's upset him recently and decided to well, they've made a headline out of it, haven't they? And it's been pushed everywhere at Cronenberg. I don't think he hates online criticism. I think that he can recognise good writing when he sees it. He's basically criticising bad writing and bad uh, journalism. Which is fair enough. Do but that, the, other, the other thing I take issue with is that he mentions that online sort of critics have to be attached to a main to a mainstream well, he said, press. He said, I think is what he's he kind said of generally now. attached to yeah. regular print media, at least in the past. So I think that as we're we giving him a pass on that one. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I think give the, the whole thing. A past really I think that the point's been made before it's worth talking about definitely it is and as I said earlier it is an issue with it it is an issue and he is right to raise that yeah so this is just a a call to arms really for anyone who's doing this kind of film criticism to put out quality stuff if you don't put out quality stuff you should be ignored and you should be derided by filmmakers of course you should because you don't then really have a right to comment on the work that they've poured hours and hours of, of their life into but yeah, I mean, that wraps it up in Cronenberg for me, really. I'm not going to get so angry that my head explodes like in scanners. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, that about wraps it up, I think, for today's episode. We might have run a bit long even today, but we had a lot to say, I think. That's true, yeah. yeah. And obviously, I hope you enjoy it, and I hope that your last thought on this isn't a history of violence. <laughs> um, so just to mention, as we do, the places that you can get in touch with us, uh, facebook.com slash cinemar, obviously, search strangers like us on there that would be great we're also as we mentioned early on now available as a podcast on iTunes on Stitcher on SoundCloud on the we one forgot I'm to mention that earlier on but now we are mentioning it tune, so that's good tune in radio okay so again iTunes subscribe leave comments uh, rate the show if you can that would be massively appreciated Stitcher SoundCloud tune in radio all available with our profile Strangers in a Cinema are exactly the same Paul, what else have I uh, And you can out? find us on Twitter, at Stranger Cinema. We'd yeah, love, love to hear from you. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you think of any films that have come out. Ta- by all means, tag us 
if you're tweeting about a film, tag us in it. That would be great. Yeah, email. Engage with us. We email, want to hear from you more. Email for the show or for the website at large is strangersinacinema at gmail.com. Any comments appreciated. Please get into the conversation. We're wrong. We're right. We want to hear from you and, and basically have takeaway that we can put into the next show and forthcoming stuff on the site. So happy new year from me, Pete. And happy new year from me, Paul.